The Frederick Neumann Memorial Lectureship is one of the seminary's official uh, public lectures of uh, longstanding, and it comes uh, at the invitation of the president, and President Barnes will um, uh, introduce our speaker and serves as our host uh, in general today. President Barnes. I welcome all of you uh, joining uh, Professor Roram and extending the seminary's hospitality to you. To Archdeacship Lucy, uh, other leaders of the Orthodox churches, to President Hatfield, and to our students, our own faculty and administrators. Uh, together we gather as one seminary community, all committed uh, to the work of God and Jesus Christ through the church. I have the high honor of introducing our speaker for this lecture. When we were considering who would, we would ask to give the Newman Lecture, giving the focus that we would have on Patriarch Paulos, we decided quite quickly uh, that there was really only one person who could do justice from our own seminary community to this topic, and that is Dr. Karlfried Freulich. Fifty years ago, our speaker, Dr. Freulich, began his contributions to the Princeton Theological Seminary faculty. In 1968, he came to the campus to serve as the Benjamin B. Warfield Professor of Ecclesiastical History, which he continued to do as an active member of our faculty for 25 years, and then another 25 years as an incredibly active retired member of the faculty <laughs> who has a bit of a recidivism problem in returning back to the classroom much to our delight. Patriarch Paulos, a Princeton Seminary graduate from the class of 1988, was Dr. Froelich's doctoral student. Dr. Froelich is responsible for compiling a special collection of Abuna Paulos's seminary papers and documents that he has organized and given to the seminary library so that these will be available for consultation by future historians and theologians. He knows Patriarch Paulus both as a leader of the church and as a student of that church's history. It is also a personal profound joy for me to be able to introduce our speaker because uh, he was also my professor when I was a master's student at this seminary. In fact, it was 40 years ago this fall that I sat in Dr. Froelich's class as an incoming Masters of Divinity student and took an introduction to church history, CH01. Uh, not only did he inspire in me a, a love for an understanding of the church's history, but he also inspired in me an understanding of the study of history as a faithful expression of Christian faith. In fact, he so inspired me that when I left here, I went on to the University of Chicago to study church history and the doctoral program there. And during the long and difficult lonely days, I wasn't sure if you had blessed me or not <laughs> with such great inspiration as I made my way through a rigorous program. But I am in fact uh, very grateful to have been uh, taught and to have inspired by Dr. Froelich and to have caught his vision uh, for an understanding of the church and its pressing implications 
uh, of its history upon the questions that we are facing today. His lecture this afternoon is, A Man of God is in this town. You would join me in welcoming Dr. Carl Fried Froelich to the pulpit. President Barnes, thank you very much for your introduction. Uh, President Hatfield uh, is moved by your witness to uh, the person whom we are remembering, uh, dear uh, venerable fathers from afar and from close by, colleagues and friends, ladies and gentlemen, a man of God is in this town. This odd Bible verse comes from a pivotal moment in the history of ancient Israel, the transition from the period of judges to the monarchy. The people want a king, like other nations around them have. God is not pleased, but allows the experiment and the search for a king is indeed a highly dramatic story. It begins with the donkeys of Kish, a man of Benjamin, which have wandered away and need to be found. That's the donkeys. Kish sends out his son, Saul, with a servant. They search far and wide, and at the foot of a hill with a town on top, are at the point of turning back without success, frustrated and dejected. At this moment, the servant has an idea. It offers a glimmer of hope, nothing more, but nothing less. A man of God is in this town. That means there may be help. He may know. This man of God was Samuel. Samuel, the last great judge of Israel, a mighty leader and a prophet. Chapter 9 Verse 9 informs us, quote, at that time prophets were called seers, visionaries. Samuel, the servant of the Lord, a visionary. Remember Samuel? Well, as a boy, Samuel was dedicated, his mother called it, loaned to the Lord at the sanctuary of Shiloh, and he was ministering there under Eli, the priest. Quote from chapter 3, 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. God himself called Samuel in visions to be God's messenger. First messenger to the priest, 
but soon to all of Israel. And he became a leader, the leader, and a trusted prophet. Quote, the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground, 319. I often thought of the parallels between Samuel and my student and friend, Abuna Paulus. Now, Abuna Paulus was born in the region of Tigre. He was always proud, he told me, to be a Tigrean. He was born into a family with strong ties to the Abagarima Monastery, one of the oldest monastic communities in Ethiopia, which houses the perhaps oldest Ethiopian manuscripts in existence, the two Garima Gospel books, which have been carbon dated at Oxford University in the 1990s as coming from the late 5th or early 6th century of the Christian era, very early. Now about his own origins, Bishop Paulus himself said this in 1973, and I quote him. Having come from a long line of Christians and also being the son of a priest, I was born and brought up in a church atmosphere and was committed to the service of the church at a very early age. At one time, he described to me some of the features the early schooling at the monastery had for him, which considered of memorizing and reciting holy texts. Of course, the liturgy, the Bible, the treasures of the tradition. The boys sat in a circle, and the teacher would wave his staff, the tere, back and forth to give them the rhythm of the chanting. This is a karay. And in fact, in a wonderful gesture of friendship, as a token of his respect for me as his teacher, Abuna Paulos gave me a tre as gift, which I still treasure. It's hanging in my study on the wall ever since. Of course, Abba Johannes did attend uh, the theological uh, college of his church in Addis Ababa and soon became himself a trusted messenger of his church in the ecumenical context of the World Council of Churches. As a young man, he already was a member of the World Council's Central Committee and a participant in the General Assembly at Uppsala in Sweden, 1968, as well as a delegate at meetings of the Faith and Order Commission. Like old Samuel, who traveled a lot, making his round around Israel year after year before returning to Ramah, 
Aber Johannes was not afraid of traveling to far off places. And he was an ecumenical visionary long before the time that this would be a widely shared attitude at home. His vision was to serve God and his church by dedicating himself to theological study. As he puts it himself in 1973, and I quote him, through my experiences, I was not only made aware of the need to further and widen my own theological education, but also the great need of our church to have a large number of modernly qualified young theologians for the greater service of the church. When he first came to Princeton Seminary as Abba Johannes, I happened to be on sabbatical leave, and I only met him after my return. I was immediately quite sympathetic to his ecumenical vision and supported his admission to the doctoral program, which began for him in 1972 and ended in 1988 with his graduation. Now, this was a long and arduous journey, which included seven years away from Princeton, which he spent in prison under the communist Derg regime in Ethiopia. It tested his faith and his vision in unusual ways. But he was an unusual person to begin with. Yes, he was unusual and he was a striking presence even when he was walking around the seminary campus where you were walking today, just over there, this little walkway from here to the campus center. I still see him day after day. That's the uh, kind of track he made. Well, um, he tested his faith and his vision, but being this unusual person uh, he, on this campus, which was used already to welcoming a very international student body, he was still different from the others. Bearded, that was unusual at the time, always wearing his black cassock, and sometimes his monastic hat. Now, I noticed, as did others, that he looked especially lean and frail during the season of Lent. He explained to me that he was observing the great Lenten fast, 56 strict days out of the almost 250 annual fast days generally observed by monks and the clergy in Ethiopia. Think of that. When my wife and I participated in a splendid Ethiopian Easter service at the Interchurch Center in New York City, a sumptuous Easter breakfast followed the service. And Bishop Paulus allowed us, my wife and me, 
to taste a mild but quite substantial vegetarian drink, which, he said, the ladies had specially prepared for him to help his body readjust to the routine of regular food after the long fast. Wonder what fasting is about? Just think about it. That's what it is. Even during his first years at Princeton, we all were aware that he came from a country that was experiencing constant problems of drought, food shortages, and famine. I remember asking Abba Johannes about the importance of international efforts to alleviate hunger in Ethiopia. The older people among you may remember that was a major issue in the 70s and early uh, 80s. His answer provided me with a very different perspective from the one most people in the West were having. Yes, he said, help was desperately needed. And he was grateful for this because he said people are starving. But he said, Ethiopians can and do subsist on very little. A handful of beans for a week is enough. And he said he knew people back home for whom, whom this was a reality. After his return in 1982, he did not speak much about the hardships he endured during his years of imprisonment. We heard something about this from Abba Moisey uh, at uh, uh, the luncheon today. That fall, that means in the fall of 82, I invited my doctoral seminar to our house for a memorable evening of fellowship and informal conversation when his student colleagues listened to him and could ask questions. They were very intriguing questions, and he told us some things about the living conditions being very harsh and cruel in a communist prison. Since food was not provided, inmates were dependent on what relatives and friends would bring in from the outside. At the end of that evening, one fellow student observed, oh, you must have felt terribly dejected and desperate during all those years, confined and captive as you were, with nothing to do all day long. The answer was shocking and surprised everyone. With that slight knowing smile of a man of God, Bishop Paulus said, you do not seem to understand. I am a monk, and I am a minister of the Lord. I serve God with all my life, outside and inside a prison. It makes no difference. At that time, the prison 
was my place of ministry, and the Lord was with us. We heard this noon in what amazing ways his ministry uh, in that prison went on. In fact, at that time, the bishop told us he and his fellow priests were able to organize worship services, opportunities for prayer and meditation, Bible study, and conversations for mutual support. We heard today that it went much farther. He converted quite a number of the people who were uh, charged with supervising this group of prisoners. Now, I caught a glimpse of the real depth of the suffering the prisoners must have experienced just a little later when I was contacted by representatives of Amnesty International who wanted to get in touch with Bishop Paulus and were asking me for his address and phone number. When I told him about this request, he got quite excited and pleaded with me, please do not give them my address and don't tell them my phone number. I must not talk with them. Every time news of international efforts on behalf of political prisoners became known to the Derg government, they would pick out some of the people in the prison and shoot them. That was the reality. The story of his unexpected and sudden release from imprisonment in the summer of 1982 provided me with still another lesson about the strong convictions he had about God's help in making his vision come true. Now, he told it to me in one way, a very abbreviated way and very dramatic, because he couldn't tell all the details. I heard today that the reality was much more complicated than this. But that's what he told me at the time. He knew, of course, that I was a Westerner. I could not feel with him all the details you know, that went into uh, this situation. As he told me, he was under strict house arrest at that time. One day, he said, a guard handed him an envelope. It contained a short note saying that he would be released the next day, should go immediately to the Addis Airport and fly to Cairo. The air ticket was included. The following day, he said he did as he was told. In fact, it took a little longer than, uh, 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 than that. He packed up, got his papers, made it to the airport. In Cairo, he was met by a representative of the World Council of Churches who sent him on to Geneva. It all was like a dream. At the headquarters of the WCC, he was well known through his earlier participation in the activities of the ecumenical movement. He learned there that he owed his release to the quiet and secretive diplomatic initiatives of the World Council, which had been successful in his case. Some other people helped at that time. 
President uh, James McCord of Princeton Seminary was also heavily involved and informed, and Bishop Paulus was soon on the way back to Princeton, where he arrived in October 1982 to continue his studies. Now, as you can see, he was an experienced international air traveler and he knew his way around airports. This fact was of considerable help to him in an awkward situation that occurred just a few years later. At that time, he told me the, that he had one brother who was living as a monk in Addis Ababa and whose small monastic group was in grave danger of starving because the government did not allow them to practice their mendicant lifestyle, which meant begging for food in the city. Bishop Paulus wanted to have this brother come and visit. And with the help of Dr. McCord and friends like Mrs. Dolores Clark, that plan was realized. But there was an unexpected snag. Bishop Paulus told me that he and a friend had driven to Kennedy Airport to pick up the brother. While he was waiting, he heard his name being paged, and he was taken by airport personnel to a plane outside on the tarmac. When he was ushered inside the totally empty plane, he was joyfully greeted by his brother, still in his seat, reportedly having refused to deboard and insisting that he could not yet be in New York. He had apparently been told he would first fly to London, and it seems that he did not realize that London was only a stopover, and the plane in the meantime had made it all the way to New York. <laughs> I made the acquaintance of this brother during a very touching visit. Bishop Paulus brought him to my office at Dickinson Street. It's no longer an office building, but at that time it was. The monk brother was dressed in his long, flowing, white monastic gown. I noticed a beautiful face, but a totally emaciated body. He immediately fell on his knees, kissed my hands, and the bishop had to tell me to please lift him up. The monk would not get up on his own, he said, showing due respect to his brother's revered teacher. President McCord made sure that the brother received a thorough medical checkup at the Presbyterian Hospital in New York City. They were very glad to get a really starving person in there to see what this medically mean, means. When I asked the 
bishop later, what the result was, he had that certain smile on his face. And he said, they found him to be in perfect health. All the organs are working properly, and they found nothing to be concerned about except severe malnutrition. This was good news, and the remaining problem was, of course, quickly solved. I saw the monk later at a special service in New York City to which Bishop Paulus had invited us. Oh, he looked much stronger, and he was beating the big drum. They have smaller drums, and they have big drums. He beat the big drums religiously during the several hours the service lasted. That's the story of the brother from Ethiopia. Now, the six years after Bishop Paulus returned from Ethiopia, when he then had to pass his comprehensive examinations and write his dissertation, were not easy for him and were not easy for me as his advisor either. I always admired his determination, his persistence, his humility, and the integrity of his unwavering faith in God's help, which carried him through all the difficulties and obstacles he was facing. He was on a mission God had sent him to accomplish, and he did whatever it would take to reach this goal. In the preface to his dissertation, he says, perhaps in a way, I quote, this dissertation represents more of a valiant effort than a triumphal achievement. But there it is, a 350-page scholarly exposition of a complicated theological topic. The topic is Marian theology of the Ethiopian tradition in critical ecumenical conversation with Western Mariologies, especially the Roman Catholic doctrinal position. Now, his original proposal, before he had to leave uh, in the middle of his program to uh, Ethiopia and then was imprisoned, his original proposal had been to catalog and to describe the various regional and local customs practiced by the Ethiopian faithful in celebration of the high feast of Filsata, the Assumption of the Virgin Mary in late August. This project would have required extensive field work in his home country, which he would have loved to do, I know, and which would have added immensely, not only to the knowledge of theological accents, but also to the body of sociological and cultural research that has been and was being done and is now still ongoing uh, about the fascinating world of Ethiopia nowadays in many countries. 
The political situation after 1974, of course, made this original plan impossible. Instead of gathering and evaluating imperial data, he had to switch his focus to the study of literary sources and their analysis. At first, getting into this mode of scholarly work after the long years of suffering turned out to be extremely trying, to say the least. In the preface to the dissertation, Bishop Paulus writes, and I quote him, it was difficult at first to read even one book. Yet I found myself suddenly faced with the task of reading many. And in a memorandum he wrote in 1986, he declares, quote, it was a miracle that I was even able to read a book during this time. And the fact that I could actually study and take comprehensive examinations was still astonishing me. But then over time, he developed a disciplined habit of reading. He was assigned a study carol in the old Spear Library, which has been replaced by this splendid library now, where he sat for hours over his books. When I needed to see him, I had a study myself uh, just across the hall there. I just had a walk over to his carol, and I knew there he was, deeply involved in his studies and looking up to me with that incomparable smile on his face. One whole section of his dissertation was devoted to the extensive corpus of Mariological texts in the Ethiopian tradition. My problem, of course, was that I did not read Gaze or modern Amharic. Fortunately, however, many of these sources were also available in translation, especially French and German. That was no problem for me. The holdings of Spear Library combined with the resources of Firestone Library at the university and the interlibrary loan service proved to be adequate for the task. I myself certainly learned from Bishop Paulus as well at that time. I had to in order to follow what he was doing. In a way, a new world opened for me as I studied and discussed with him this amazing literature, which I barely knew existed. He could wax quite eloquent when he tried to satisfy my curiosity of wanting to understand the nuances of theological terms or the beauty of a piece of Marian poetry. And he obviously enjoyed witnessing my progress in grasping uh, to understand what he was trying to say. When the bishop finally was writing the drafts of his dissertation, 
his work seemed to slow down. I must admit that I became somewhat impatient with him at times, but then also myself, with myself over my impatience, because the reason for the slow pace was quite obvious. Since 1985, Bishop Paulus, along with his doctoral work at Princeton, was involved in church work elsewhere. At first, he helped to start a congregation of Ethiopian refugees in New York City, which grew very rapidly from a handful of members to several hundred in one year and a half. He served it as its pastor and spiritual leader, spending three full days a week in the city. Very soon that circle widened, and as is known today, he was instrumental in founding similar congregations in a number of cities in the US and in Canada, among them Dallas, San Diego, and Toronto. For him, this work of spiritual leadership was becoming a natural part of his vision and of the mission for which God allowed him to be in this country, himself a refugee, but also fulfilling his ministry regardless of where the Lord set him down to exercise it. He did not tell me much about this part of his life. The extensive travel he was constantly planning and executing. And frankly, I didn't want to hear of it because I was concerned that time was running out for him to finish his program. In the end, however, things did work out with the help of God. In the spring of 1988, the final draft of the dissertation was typed by Reverend Linda Roberts, who was a 1984 graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and Bishop Paulus, as was the custom, defended it publicly in a memorable session in front of the entire history department. I remember that contrary to my expectations, he was not nervous or insecure, but answered the probing questions of his committee. Well, I think Jim uh, uh, Moore was a member and Kathleen McVeigh was a member. He answered our uh, questions thoughtfully, and I would say even with a slightly aggressive self-confidence. <laughs> I assume you would agree, right? Everyone was pleased that he did so well, and I must say I gladly shared his joy and satisfaction on that day that the long journey had arrived at something of a happy end. Well, not quite. The last story I want to share 
played out during the few weeks between the oral defense and the day of graduation. That means in May of 1988. One last requirement for graduation stipulated that the candidate had to deliver two clean copies of the final form of the dissertation to the dean's office by a certain deadline, which in this case, I believe, was on a Monday morning. Bishop Paulos knocked on my office door on that morning, that Monday morning. A big smile was all over his face, and he told me that he had just handed over the two clean copies of the dissertation to the secretary of the dean's office. Oh, I congratulated him very heartily and asked how he had managed to meet that deadline, which I knew was a big problem for him. Then he told me the entire story of the miracle, which I have to admit was hard to believe, but obviously had to be true. By the week's end, Linda Roberts had made all the changes necessary after the defense in the typescript, and a computer-savvy nephew, that is a wuhib, is that right? Had transferred everything on a floppy disk. At that time, disks really were floppy. (laughs) So, yes, he had done that. No, the nephew had done that. The text now, of course, had to be printed out. It was Saturday, and the seminary's duplicating office was closed on Saturdays. And the bishop knew of no one who had an appropriate personal printer. I didn't have one myself. You don't remember this time when this was rare that people had you know, uh, a personal uh, a printer. Now, as he told it to me, he started wandering around aimlessly that Saturday morning, first around the campus, then into town, desperately praying to God to help him. On Nassau Street, which is the main thoroughfare here, he noticed a new store for office supplies, which he had not consciously seen before. Well, on impulse, he entered and asked the manager whether he had for sale some uh, real modern printer which could handle a big job fast. Well, the manager, sizing up the exotic, and dignified appearance of the stranger must have had the impression that a major sale was in the offing (laughs) and eagerly showed him several recent models. Bishop Paulus played the part quite well. He nodded approvingly at each stop and asked, occasional questions. 
Then he took out his floppy disk and pointing to a particularly expensive new machine said, you know, I have here a document of over 350 pages. Would this machine be able to print it out? Well, the manager proudly replied, of course he can do that. It just takes 10 minutes. Well, the bishop said, can you give me a demonstration? <laughs> the manager turned the printer on. And in 10 minutes, the first clean copy was laying on the table. At this point, the bishop revealed the truth, that he actually was a penniless Ethiopian clergyman who desperately needed two clean copies of his dissertation by Monday morning. I'm sure the manager was disappointed. But for whatever reason, and that's the miracle, he took pity on the strange visitor, printed out the second copy, and sent Bishop Paulus on his way without charging him a dime. I remember, <laughs> I remember the bishop finishing his report to me with the words, God heard my prayer. I knew he would hear it. I knew it. A man of God is in this town. Subconsciously, but sometimes even consciously, I knew it during all those years when we had Abuna Paulus among us at Princeton Seminary. I think we were greatly blessed. The presence of this man of God with his vision of education and ministry in the service of God and his beloved Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church made this seminary and even this town of Princeton a better, <clears throat> a better place. And even His Holiness must have known it. In 2011, when Dr. Paul Roram, the initiator and the spiritual rector behind this wonderful celebration today, together with another Princeton colleague, Dr. Lawrence Stuckenberg, who is in Munich now, when they were visiting Addis Ababa, His Holiness Abuna Paulus showed them that large, framed photograph hanging in the foyer of the new patriarchal palace. It was a portrait showing the then Bishop Paulus on the day of his graduation at the beautiful Universal University Chapel of Princeton University, right here in Princeton. Indeed, a man of God was in this town. Thank you. <laughs>